0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I thought I'd start with this picture. Of, I gave a talk at a conference at Harvard a few years ago, and, and this was the, the, the poster for the conference. I thought it was kind of a cool poster The human hands, what Aristotle called the tool of tools the symbol of our distinctive body form and unique capacities of mind. And nowhere are these powers more dramatic than in our recent advances in genetic editing. Those hands are turning now to operate on our very selves. It's clear that we're at an amazing moment in human history. Seventy years ago, Aldous Huxley, anticipating the transformation of human life through advances in biology, as the final and most searching revolution, asserted this really revolutionary revolution is to be achieved not in the external world, but in the souls and flesh of human beings. In the decades since the first publication of Brave New World, amid the accelerating pace of discovery in genetics, developmental biology, laboratory production of life, there's been increasing appreciation of Huxley's prescient concerns. Yet throughout this whole period, limitations in our tools and techniques for specific and efficient modification of genomes have been a major constraining factor for advances in biotechnology. But no more. Now, as in what MIT Tech Review has called the biggest biotech discovery of the century, and it may remain that too in the rest of the century, CRISPR-Cas9 and related techniques promise easy to do, inexpensive, and highly precise genetic deletions, assertions, and functional manipulations at, at many levels of genomic process across the full spectrum of living beings. This holds great promise, obviously, for agriculture, animal studies, and basic biomedical research and therapy. But at the same time, it opens fundamental questions about our role within the natural order and the use of these technologies in shaping the human future. I'm sure you guys all know what CRISPR-Cas9 is. It's an acronym and it's it's adapted from a discovery of an immune system deployed by bacteria to uh, protect themselves from viruses and it's been described as a genetic scalpel or molecular scissors, but I think it's more rightly compared to a Swiss Army knife. It's composed of two basic elements: a kind of guide RNA sequence that identifies and attaches to a specific part of the DNA molecule, and an endonuclease, which is a fancy way of saying uh, a kind of uh, cutting apparatus that allows a, ring, but can be used as a as a device to attach a range of of operations onto the DNA molecule and also an RNA too by other configurations. So um, as as science continue to explore the CRISPR system and its many natural variations and selectively engineer clever new modifications in its targeting operation, they're discovering a whole new genetic toolkit with functional applications at every level of genomic process. It's a really amazing, new, versatile tool. The breadth and flexibility and precision of these new tools opening a vast increase in the range and complexity of experimental possibilities, but also theoretical insights and then eventually practical applications in, in, uh, already in genetics and in medicine in the future. So, what can this do? Well, that was to show you the mechanism. Um, really amazing moment. Advances in gene editing are enabling us to rewrite the very language of life. So, what can it do? Well, CRISPR can make, it, make more nutritious fruits and vegetables, for example, without the GM, genetically so modified organism, where to make um, more efficient photosynthesis, possibly Um, genetically modified lab plants can be the source of powerful new drug systems. You can get kilogram quantities from a field of plants modified to produce a particular um, protein that that is very expensive to make even in small microgram quantities in in, uh, synthetic lab. So engineer um, animals to produce uh, organs that can potentially be transplanted to humans. You may have seen the heart from the pig about two months ago. Um, So amazing power to knock genes out, insert genes, modify gene systems. Every way you look at it, it's just a phenomenal tool. Amazing to research possibilities and and, um, great increase in the capacity to study Basic issues in science underlying biomedicine. Together with deepening knowledge of genomics and our exponential increase in gene sequencing capacities, these new tools for understanding and control the most basic levels of human life are opening new tools for revolutionary advance in biomedicine. In the first few years of its introduction, CRISPR-Cas9 was employed in literally thousands of scientific publications within just two years. I think it's like five thousand. So it's such a versatile tool that the scope of its applications promises transformational impact as great as earlier discoveries in electricity, synthetic chemistry, and nuclear physics. And while so so studies of developmental biology, for example, studies of immunity. Um, it's cheap, easy to do, quick. I, I'm friends with a guy who did the very first recombinant DNA experiment with mice, and he told me it took it took him two years, two hundred thousand dollars for a postdoc, and he was able to change one gene. And he told me that that uh, now he can for for uh, two thousand dollars in three weeks, he can change practically an unlimited number of genes. So that's how dramatic this is. And if you understand how important these kind of studies are, you can see why it's a revolution that's going to lead to a lot of other revolutions in understanding. So while much of this advance is welcome, as what we call in Silicon Valley constructive disruption, providing urgent and uncontroversial progress in biomedicine, agriculture as well, and environmental ecology as well, still. The power and depth of operation of these new tools delivering previously unimagined possibilities for redeploying natural biological processes, and some have very startling implications. So um, it's a serious matter. Uh, One day, Jennifer Doudna, who discovered CRISPR Cas9, and who I did a project with, and you may have read last spring or last fall, she got the Nobel Prize for this. One day we were doing some talk about the project we were organizing and she, as we stood up to leave, she said, you know, Bill, sometimes I lay in in bed at night and wonder, are we going to turn the whole world into one big GMO? So she's very sensitive to the meaning of the dramatic power of this technology. So what have we done with it? Well, we've created firefly, um, mice with firefly genes that glow in the dark. Actually, that was done by a previous gene editing tool, but then, then somebody created a bunny that glows in the dark. And I read that they created an albino lizard by taking the melanin producing out of it. None, none of this probably hurts the animal and this makes interesting research. And in the case of the bunny, I think it was an art project, but it probably didn't hurt the bunny. Um, and we're, we're probably looking at some pretty weird things up ahead. I, I wouldn't be surprised that, that uh, we're going to Breed animals or make animals that cross natural mating barriers that we could never do in the current world of nature, creating entirely new hybrid species. And we may be, some people think we may be able to program new behaviors into animals or to modify developmental programs such that we get animals with completely distinct and uncommon, sort of bizarre anatomical or body proportions. So I think it's possible. When you guys take your, your, maybe even your children, but maybe your grandchildren to the zoo, you'll actually see that Dr. Zeus's animals there if, if he hasn't been canceled completely by then. Um, anyway, obviously, um, very, very useful tools would be the creation of human animal chimeras. Um, don't, don't necessarily have to use CRISPR, but that would help a lot. Don't worry, this is just a drawing, that's not real. Um, but it might be someday, and uh, raises profound questions about human dignity and what constitutes a sufficient degree of humanity to be cautious. Um, that's This is not a new project, by the way. The Chinese, several years ago, put human genes into monkeys to make them smarter and more human-like, not completely or anything, but it, it did allow them to do some things that they couldn't previously do. Um, and that, in turn, is the result is, is in step with a very long project the beginning of the 20th century that the Russians were trying to create the, create the human human z so there's a appetite for doing this kind of stuff and clearly the ethical challenges that are very significant George Church at Harvard has suggested that at one point we may want to deextinction certain of our ancestral species um, Neanderthals or Denisovans. It's so really, what would we do with them? I hate to think, actually. But so you see, it's really opening weird questions. And MIT Tech Review had an article about engineering the perfect astronaut, which, if we're going to really do space travel, we may very well have to modify our bodies, not necessarily by germline genetic engineering, but in some ways that go very down to very basic issues related to gene expression. So you can see there's really interesting and sometimes troubling issues. Here's, a, here's somebody suggesting we might wanna just make people a lot smaller so we wouldn't use so much natural resource to keep humans alive. I'm pretty sure that's a complete joke. But anyway, it's funny, isn't it? Um, so uh, at the same time, there are people, very serious people in Silicon Valley. There's, you may know Google has this thing called Calico, California Life Company. And now Bezos has given something like $3 billion to set up Altos something or other, Altos Institute. And they're they're hiring professors. You guys better get ready for this. They're hiring professors out of places like Stanford and Purdue and, and paying them a million dollars to come and work for their, their set, light up any, anybody's cortex. You got to get ready. So there's a big push to see if they're, they used these tools to extend longevity. Um, by the way, I'll tell you a little story. I, You may have seen this guy, pictures of this guy, Aubrey de Grey has this very long beard like Methuselah, and he he's a big longevity advocate. And I debated him in a forum put on by the San Francisco Chronicle at the Civic Center in San Francisco. And hundreds and hundreds of people came to this thing, and he, he's standing up there and he says he, he says, I'm very confident if I can just live for 35 more years, I can live to be a thousand because I will achieve what he called longevity escape velocity. Once we start to understand the aging process and we live long enough, then the advances will come so rapidly that they'll outpace our aging process. So he's going to live to a thousand years. Uh, I I, I told him it was unmanly and he wasn't going to achieve it anyway. But uh, only after he was very brutal with me, though. So, um, yeah, crazy world. I don't know if much of this is actually going to ever happen. But there's all sorts of post-human, techno sapiens, cyborg type uh, extrapolations by the transhumanists. Some of which are very serious students. I've had them in my classes, and they, they're they're thoughtful. They argue that we we have, are produced by a sort of a, a kind of cruel an amoral evolutionary process, and it's our obligation as moral creatures, with moral awareness, to improve ourselves and set the stage that current humanity is just a stepping stone for the next stage of human existence, which is self-directed evolution. I doubt it. I think, if anything, we're going to come to appreciate what amazing creatures we already are. I can talk more about that later. Anyway, their their logo is H+. plus. Anybody in school knows what they mean. So that's that's where we at. Where we're at. And uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Some of you may have read his books. They're very gracefully written. They're sort of powerful, but they're I think they're a little bit over the top. I don't think he knows science as well as he knows how to, as well as he knows rhetoric. And and um, he says sapiens will upgrade its, sapiens will upgrade itself into another kind of being within a couple of centuries at most. Earth will be populated by beings who are different from us in their cognitive and physical abilities. He doesn't say how different, but they that obviously things would be very different. I don't think so, but I may be wrong. So on a more, a more sober, less hyperbolic level, there are dramatic things to explore. We may be nearing the beginning of the end of genetic diseases. What an amazing statement that is. Um, that's Jennifer. Um, so CRISPR is already. Um, I read yesterday that there are a thousand clinical trials of gene editing right now, and most of them are probably probably CRISPR. You think so, Kevin? Most of them would be CRISPR involved. So, uh, I, I let me just tell you how a couple of these work. So this this is a blood smear of sickle cell anemia and sickle cell anemia is a, a disease that has a if you if you have it in your in your blood as a carrier if you're heterozygous means you got the normal sickle gene and normal hemoglobin gene from your mother or father and the and the sickle gene from one of the or the other then you're heterozygous and then you are protected against malaria and a few other things but if you have it in two forms, if you're homozygous, you, you express the disease usually. And I took care of a little boy in my medical training at Stanford who was in for, he was 11 years old and he was in for his 200th hospitalization. And what happens is when the when the, uh, the oxygen levels are low in the blood, in the body, the the, the, the sickles, the, the cells naturally sickle, and then as they go through the... The small vessels, they clump. This is what normal blood cells are supposed to look like, biconcave discs that they smoothly roll over each other. The sickles clump, form clots, and then the tissue gets oxygen-starved, and it's terrible. And they go into, into sickle crisis. Well, what they've done now is is that they've, they've taken out um, hemato- circulating hematopoietic stem cells, the basic cells that form um, red blood cells and we produce something like three billion a minute. So it's it's massive, maybe it's an hour, but it's huge. It's massive production of cells. to so the stem cells, they mobilize them out of the marrow, they take them out and they modify them with genetic engineering and put them back in. And sickle cells caused by a single gene, a, a single base pair actually in a single gene. But so far what they're doing, I think, I don't think there's any changing the genes so far. What they're doing is they're turning on a system of fetal hemoglobin, which allows pretty normal functioning well enough to get, keep people from being sick. So that's very effective. And, and they can deliver these, these alterations into the cells using, using a, a variety of means. But if, you, if, if they want to get them into the internal parts of the body for, for cells and tissues that they can't, take out and manipulate in the lab. They're using um, especially tooled viruses, adeno-associated viruses, one kind. And they can even target these into places, obscure places like within the brain. So there's amazing possibilities here. And considering that there are, are at least six or 8,000, maybe may, maybe many, many more, probably many, many more single cell, single gene diseases, the, all, and total, 95% of them have no, no cure or even treatment. So you can see that this could release humanity from a huge burden. Things that have plagued our species ever since the beginning have now, we now have the op- opportunity to intervene. And here's some, some examples of this. Uh, this little boy has something called Miller syndrome. And, and um, so it's obvious. That in certain cases, the earlier the genetic intervention can be made, the better the treatment outcomes you can see. It, he's got developmental problems. So you could prevent disease from the onset, allowing moral development, normal development. Um, so this has reawakened the long-held hope that we might one day be able to make targeted DNA modifications directly at the level of human gametes, or maybe at, at early embryos. To, to remove the genetic disease once and for all from a family lineage. But this in turn raises challenging questions about the degree of acceptable risk and what types of conditions should count as worthy targets of such interventions. Um, so and this this is a pretty <coughs> serious disease. Here's another one, this is called Lesch-Nyhan syndrome. And these poor little kids, they actually chew their fingers off. There's some kind of metabolic thing that drives them and they chew their lips off and it's terrible. And, and yet they have pretty normal intelligence or maybe normal intelligence. And if we could cure this, we'd be doing a great good. But what about this? This is albinism. Is that worth taking risks over or is it, is it just a difference, a variation? And, and what about things like dyslexia that affect 15% of the population overall globally it's obviously a natural variation, but it isn't quite as adaptive for schoolwork as my kids who have it know. I think I have it too. Um, a lot of a lot of very successful people have it, um, including Charles Schwab, um, the investment guy, and and Bronson or Branson, the guy who set up Virgin Atlantic. Some people think Einstein had it. So, um, what about it? Is do we retool people so they can fit into the system, or do we Change the system. I I think the latter, but you know even beyond that kind of stuff, there there'll be perf- parental preference for hair and eye color and taller stature, or whatever you know how that goes. How you saw what they would do to get their kids into the varsity blues. You know what they'll do to get your kids into the best colleges. Cheat on that stuff. Maybe they'd be better. Think they're better off going to the offshore clinic and getting their their little embryos fixed so that they can all get into Purdue later. So, wow, what are we looking at here? Um, But I think anybody in science knows that it's not quite as simple as this because um, genes specify proteins, and proteins interact to produce, produce traits. Even things like hair and eye color, stature controlled by many genes, None of this will be easy because it's not like, you know, the genes are not like Legos. It's not like Mr. Potato, right? where you just plunk on a new nose or ears or something. Genes, genes specify proteins and proteins are really like the primary colors on an artist's palette. They, they get mixed together before they're put onto the canvas. And so most traits are the result of many genes. That's called polygenic inheritance. And most genes affect many traits. That's called pleiotropy. If you learn those two things this lecture, you're going to be way ahead of a lot of your contemporaries. So things like intelligence, that's, thats who knows, maybe the entire genome, but it's certainly many, many hundreds of genes involved in intelligence. And the most they've been able to trade, to, to find in these so-called multi trade loci is like a 3 4% impact statistically. So... It's, we're not right on the verge of designer babies. You can get that, check that one off for the moment. However, if you do want red hair, we can deliver it because it's caused by, in some cases, by a single gene. So there, there are a few things we could do. You know, when I was putting this lecture together, I was thinking, I ran across this picture of these little kids in Nepal. And I was thinking, what a beautiful thing human variation is. How glorious is that little troop of kids? And I don't think we'll be able to, Standardize humans even if we wanted to, but it, but the idea is so stupid in my opinion, we can argue that. I don't think you'll argue with me actually. Yeah. However, having said all this, there are certain things that that some people would argue might might be worth doing. So this is Harvard geneticist George Church. I'm pretty good friends with George. He's part of the project I did with Jennifer. He's a very interesting guy. Very controversial guy in many ways. He actually likes that controversy, I think. Um, really, he's entertained by it. And um, he, he's compiled a list of what he calls rare protective variants of large impact, which exist naturally in the human gene pool, but only in a relatively few people. And these include variants that code for, so you see this guy's quoting him, rare protective variants. So these are some of his rare protective variants extra strong bones, lean muscles, um, more resistant to viruses, load, or I have no idea what that's all about. But anyway, there it is. And and I'm sure he's got many more now. Um, less diabetes, less Alzheimer's, who wouldn't be in favor of that? Or your offspring? I mean, that would be a very big temptation. Stuart Newman, who's also a friend of mine, very thoughtful uh, developmental biologist, who points out that... that um, the genetic design of future offspring, even well-conceived, is going to be very controversial because it opens the door, tends to pick and choose other characteristics as well. While you're in there, why not fix this or enhance that? And because definitions of normality vary and also the different appetites for taking risk. So this is really problematic. And not only that, but but it's it's pretty plain that that uh what what some people would want one generation wouldn't wouldn't be quite right when cloning came up i was on the president's council on bioethics during, during the subsequent years a few years later there was all this talk about cloning kids and michael jordan could clone his kid who i guess is actually his son is a good basketball player but somebody said yeah you might clone michael jordan and and um uh, then then he'd find out that, that his kid really likes stamp collecting instead. <laughs> so that was a funny comment. But this is the, called the flavor of the month problem. You design your kids for what's popular in your own generation, 20 years later, that may be out the door and, and not interesting to people, not desirable. Um, and besides, do parents really have a right to design their kids? I personally don't think so. But when it comes to diseases, it's a little bit more controversial we can talk about that more at the end, but you know, some people think that this is should be morally obligatory because people owe it to their kids to give them the best genetic heritage they could have. But then even defining disease is difficult. I mean, for example, this is extreme, but this, what disease does this, this person have? Anybody got an idea? Come on, you guys are smart. This is a very, this is a genuine disease in the text, text medical textbooks of the antebellum South, and it had a fancy Greek name, drapetomania, from the words in Greek that mean a strong tendency to run away, a passion to run away. Well, that that poor slave, is, his treatment was whipping, and African skin tends to form keloids, which are heavy scars, and that's his punishment. That that poor man, so. That was defined as a disease. And we all know the tragic story of Nazi Germany and where it led to and the horror of it. So what are we to make of this? What, what's, what's possible here? What, where are the reasonable uses of all this? Um, when you combine this with, with certain attitudes in the general society, you, you really see see where this could go. So we need to back up and ask ourselves how we where we stand and wh- what we might end up doing with this kind of stuff. And it's if you really look at it, you can see um, there's been a steady increase in the medical interventions uh, in human life for things that cut below uh, medical therapy. We we in the President's Council put out a book which I think is the best thing we made, we did. what's called Beyond Therapy, Biotechnology, and the Pursuit of Happiness. So the, the traditional role of medicine has been to cure disease and alleviate suffering, to restore and sustain the patient to a natural level of functioning and well-being. The medical arts were in the service of a wider reverence and respect for the order of the created world. This idea was put succinctly by the Roman physician Galen, The physician is only nature's assistant. But now, with the new powers of our advancing biotechnology, there's a new paradigm, one of liberation, technological transformation, and the quest for happiness and human perfection. Grounded in the widespread practice and general acceptance of cosmetic surgery, slowly but steadily, the scope and purpose of medicine are being extended along the gradient of our appetites and ambitions to encompass dimensions of life not previously considered matters of health, but of natural human variation and natural limitation. From Rogaine, this is this is one of the early ads for Rogaine. You know, you rub it on your head and you don't lose your hair. And I mean, look at actually, not having your hair is much more acceptable than it was when this came out like thirty years ago. But Look at that ad. It's a genius kind of ad. There's this guy entering middle age, his hair waning the little back of the uh, late autumn on the windswept beach. Life is life like himself is waning in its seasonality. It's, it just conveys all this, this sort of anguish of going out of your prime. And it says in the small print, if you're losing your hair, you no longer have a reason to lose hope. So that Madison Avenue knows how to push this stuff. So what an amazing, amazing situation. Rogaine for baldness, growth hormone for short stature, uh, birth control pills, Viagra, um, ProVigil, a drug that, that uh, allows prolonged periods of wakefulness. I shouldn't tell you guys because you don't want to use it to study. But people can stay awake as long as 60 hours with focus. I think it does undesirable things to you. Rebound effect. But, um, but there's also a drug that, that can bypass. Um, it's called seasonale, technological bypass of the monthly periodicity of the menstrual cycle. So in all these ways, we've already altered and revised the given frame of nature increasingly. We've come to expect from medicine not just freedom from disease, but freedom from distress, struggle, and even the constraints of a natural life process, from all that's unattractive, imperfect, or even just inconvenient. Moreover, with a general trend to regard life's challenges as a bioengineering problem, There is, at least in the culture of Silicon Valley, a fashionable fascination with ideas of biofluidity, interchangeable parts and fluid identities, and an almost religious commitment to utopian ideas of technological transcendence. Not just living forever, but living the way you want to live forever. So acknowledging, so there's a few of the things that may come up, IQ, better brains, living forever. This is getting real in the sense that to some extent we will be able to intervene in, uh, in human life and at least the temptations will be real and the interventions, even if they fail, are likely to be undertaken. It's no longer sci-fi and it's uh, very technological, very sort of statistical and cold. It's treating human life with a very within the lens of bioengineering not as kind of like those little kids in Nepal. So acknowledging the challenge of these prospects, there is within the general public and the scientific community, I'd say, a growing apprehension that earlier speculations regarding designer babies and even state-sponsored eugenics programs may now be at least to some degree something to worry about. And I'm not. I'll tell you toward the end why I'm not quite as worried as many people are. When CRISPR was discovered for the first time in the years that I'd been teaching at Stanford, which is over thirty years, the my scientific friends were coming to me saying, "Wow, this is getting scary." Um, so we're at a really amazing moment, and and so recognizing this as Jennifer Doudna did, because she was ahead of the curve in understanding this was coming. In 2015, Jennifer organized together with some Nobel laureates and some, some bioethics like people, a, a committee meeting to deliberate a little bit on this. And they issued a statement in Science Magazine calling, for, citing an urgent need for open discussion of the merits and risks of human, human genome modification and calling for an international discussion of these matters. Their central concern was the possibility that germline genetic engineering might be attempted with human gametes or embryos before the difficult scientific and ethical issues associated with such procedures had been adequately considered. And then a year later, together with the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the British Royal Society, the United States Academy of Sciences hosted the first international summit on human genome editing in Washington, D.C. that took place. This meeting was made especially urgent because just a few months before, reports out of China showed that Chinese science had done germline genetic experiments, albeit in the laboratory dish on embryos that were non-viable, never implanted embryos that couldn't have survived if they had been implanted. So after three days of discussion, the organizing committee issued a statement recommending intensive basic and clinical research and preclinical research, including, as necessary, studies using human embryos, but with a proviso that they should not be used to establish a pregnancy. They went on to declare that it would be quote, irresponsible to proceed with any clinical use of germline editing until issues of safety, ethics, and social consensus have been adequately explored. In making their recommendations for the way forward, it's clear that the committee recognized the extraordinary opportunity that our new gene editing tools provide for advances in understanding early human development and the origins of disease. Um, Prior statements by leading scientists had included including someone on this committee had underscored all that. Um, I'll show you some of those statements in a few minutes but um, but it's interesting that they that studies with embryos um, were not on the list of things that needed to be discussed for their ethics They just assumed that would be okay um, so what happened was they assembled this committee and they they deliberated and they issued a kind of vague statement. Urging the scientific community to, to go slow and so forth, setting out a series of criteria and and hoping that self-governance would would take care of itself. In fact, in truth, these international summits are are both interesting for the people to convene, but they can convene often and often do. What they're really about is public relations. And announcing that the National Academy of Sciences. Looking at this carefully, so you, you guys out there, the general public doesn't have to worry. I know you're not the general public, but you know out there, um, you guys don't have to worry. We're the scientific community, and we're going to take care of it. And we're we we're, we're, we have this on our radar, and we're not going to let it get out of control. So that sort of bubbled along for another three years until they they uh, set this the, the second international. Uh, editing summit in Hong Kong in November 2018, and so um, one of, one of my children, my my son, was going to speak at this at this international conference, and so I decided, well, I'll go along, make sure he coats his hair, and and uh, I probably would have gone anyway, but but uh, so I so I, I uh, in the meantime. In the, in the intervening years, I'd met this guy here. His name is is um, Jiankui, otherwise known as JK from here on out. Okay, that's his, nobody can say that, so they give him his nickname, JK. So JK was was coming through California when Jennifer and I held our first conference. And Jennifer sent me an email and said, Bill, what do you think? We only have one person from China, shall we include him? He's young and, and but he's doing interesting work and and uh, maybe we should invite him. And I said, yeah, sure. And so we gave him you know eight or ten minutes, like we were each of us, and he presented and I was the convener, so I had to get to know everybody, but I so I so I I, I only had a few minutes, but I did take some time to get to know him a little bit. And I liked him. He was a very interesting guy to to talk with over some of the meals and stuff. Well then about three months later, this was this was by that time, mid 2017, I had got an email from JK himself saying, I'm coming through Stanford. Would you have time to talk with me? So I, I said, yeah, let's have lunch together. We'll meet at the student union and we'll sit around in the sun and and, and, and talk. And, and I didn't know what he wanted. So, so I met with him and, um, and and I, I was very careful then and every subsequent meeting to buy him lunch because I figured, you know, a guy, young professor in China probably doesn't make very much. It turns out, by the way, he had $50 million worth of companies at that time. And um, anyway, I bought him lunch. We sat around. Wow. And within about 10 minutes, I was totally <laughs> thralled with what he was telling me about Chinese science and what they were doing. And I mean, it was amazing to hear it. Some of some of the stuff he told me I've never said publicly, and and uh, anyway, um, fortunately, I had nothing on my calendar that afternoon, so I I stayed and talked with him for I don't know three or four hours, and and uh, it was really nice. Um, by the way, among other things, since this is sponsored by the Institute, I'll tell you this: he he uh, he wanted to know about. Um, about the embryo argument in America. He said, that's just a fringe argument, right? Just some fanatical people that don't allow em- embryo experimentation. And, and, and I said, no, no, JK, that's a pretty much evenly divided in our country, you know, because after all, they're, they're, uh, an embryo is the early stage of a human life. And we want to advance science, but we also don't want to disrespect life in its various stages and processes. And he held up his fingers and he said, how can something that big be as important as my two-year-old? And I said to him, well, JK, your two-year-old started out that big. So it was an interesting conversation. Um, but anyway, then he came back again a few months later and again and again. And so I had long conversations with him all the time. I got more and more worried about what he was doing. And and finally he came back in a in October 2018, and he said to me, uh, "I have an important paper coming out in a few months." And I thought, "Uh oh, JK, I hope you didn't implant embryos." And he wouldn't tell me. And I, I kept trying to sneak around to get him to reveal it, but I couldn't do it. And I said, "When are you going to? When is this coming out?" He said, "January, February." Mm -hmm. All right. So they had invited him to speak at the Human. Um, at the International Summit for his basic research advice and stuff. And, I, and so he was already on the docket. But when I was going through SFO, San Francisco Airport, I got a call from Antonio Regalado at, at MIT Tech Review. And he said, what do you know about JK? And I said, well, I don't know, but I'm worried. Anyway, by the time he was on top of it, he leaked. He leaked. He got hold of the information and leaked it. And by the time I got, I bought the Wi-Fi, and I never buy the Wi-Fi on airplanes because it never works. But and it didn't work. So I all the way across the Pacific. I was as antsy to see what was happening. Finally, just just an hour out of Hong Kong, the Wi-Fi flipped on, and right away I saw every newspaper in the world had a headline: Human Twins, Twin Girls, Genetically Modified, germline." 1 modified twins born in China. And by the time I got to the, to the uh, hotel where the, for the conference participants, they were, they were talking about nothing else. By the time his session came up, they cleared an hour and a half for him to speak. He, he, he came in with an armed guard and I was supposed to go have dinner with him, with his family in Shenzhen, the, the night after his presentation, by then he was, he was basically under house arrest. And and uh, it was 36 hours into the conference by then, and a whole third of the conference room was cordoned off for press who'd flown in from everywhere in the world, and there were cameras with lenses as long as cannons. I mean, it was, it was amazing. They brought J.K. in to speak, and the cacophony of clicking from the cameras was so loud you couldn't even hear him speak. So the organizer came up and said, no more pictures, and J.K. then laid out what he had done and boy, did he get attacked. I mean, he was very dignified and calm, conducted himself very well, but wasn't very persuasive on the scientific front. And, um, and it was really a tragedy. And obviously because the, the summit itself was designed to show that we got this under control, this was the worst possible thing for the scientific community. Have happened. It was like getting, hiring a skywriter to put on the sky. We don't have this under control. And, and so it was a really enormous event. And I can tell you more about this in the Q&A. Um, but I can tell you the interesting thing coincidence of all this is that this is the very day he has been released from his three years in prison for what he did. And I got a call this morning. Some of you may have seen me making an email earlier to arrange to talk tonight that my son and another person who knew J.K. were going to try to set up a four-way conversation with him. So this was really quite an event, and you know, I felt like I was at the epicenter of the human story that day, maybe that month, and in history this will be a very significant moment because I do believe we will try to genetically engineer our, our species. And the, where that may lead us could be extremely tragic or maybe hopeful, but it's going to be controversial, that's for sure. So I've used up most of my time just telling you a story. That's J.K. in my, in my dining room. Um, what he did was he knocked out a gene that codes for the entrance pore for getting HIV virus into cells. And he had a very, I think, a pretty strong argument for why he needed to do this, because in China, there's a lot of people who have HIV for very innocent reasons, nothing to do with their conduct. China, China's leaders had the mythology—maybe they weren't wrong—that young blood can rejuvenate. There's now a, a theory of this, but but they had this idea that young blood could rejuvenate people, and so they were going around to the villages, uh, collecting blood from volunteers in China. That means something different than it does here, and. And uh, they weren't changing needles, so they just transmitted AIDS all over the place. And there's tragic because they're ostracized, they're stigmatized, and so the couples wanted him to get the gene out of their kids so they would never get this disease. So that helps explain a little of it. But in the in the months before, I sent JK uh, I thought JK was gonna do stepwise concerns, but I sent him an email about um the Nuffield Council in in UK had said that designer babies could be someday acceptable and therapeutic would be very acceptable. And I thought JK would say, wait a minute, they're getting a little ahead of themselves. That's not so smart. Instead, he wrote me back, great news, excellent. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. So, um, but he did believe that it was a, a, a useful thing, for not for enhancing, but for therapeutic work. And he said so, but... Anyway, just one little footnote on J.K. He 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 called me after the summit, and I had long conversations with him over a period of of three or four weeks, four or five, six weeks till he got taken off to jail. And and he, among other things, he sent me this email from a fertility clinic in Dubai, wanting to to come and learn his procedure. See, so there's a market for this. Like with offshore stem cell market, there's a huge market for this. So watch out, it's coming, even if it doesn't come through legitimate circles, it, it will come in offshore commercial operations. Um really worrisome thing. Um, I wanna show you just a minute or two of this this um, video because it gives you some preview of where this is all going. I'm not even sure the sound will work, let me see. I've been doing this on Zoom, so I can't be sure that the sound will work. Can you hear that? It's mostly written anyway. I am Oh, we, oh, oh. Welcome to Mixed Wisdom and NHFC. We are located at the center of New York City, near to the Columbus Circle and the Central Park West. Using the highest standard hospital in the world, we established the this center, which occupies 38,000 square feet, which is a state designed for human immortality training. You, you get it. That's what you're going to see, and and there's going to be all sorts of temptations and maybe even pressures on people to do this kind of stuff. Um, so these are these are two statements you can read them yourselves. George Daly is the dean of Harvard Medical School. Um, Paul Berg and David Baltimore both have Nobel prizes. Paul Berg was is, is my teacher at Stanford, and, and we remained friends, colleagues, and friends. I go see him periodically. Talk to him; he's 96 now, I think, 90, something like that. But um, they rightfully say that this—if there were no moral issues, these would be—they don't worry about the moral issues. They say these are great tools to study all sorts of important stuff. But that leads us right back to the embryo. And that's where we have to take this very seriously, because the first and most dramatic use of this technology is going to be the study of developmental biology, and at least of human life. Um, and we all, if we weren't alive, at least we remember there was a huge controversy over embryonic stem cells. My own alumni magazine pitted it as science against religion, which was nonsense. But um, it was a very big deal, and even before embryonic stem cells were discovered, the controversies over using embryos for in vitro fertilization studies were, were a tense argument in our country. And the Dickey-Wicker Amendment, which is still in place, it's renewed every year, it's not encoded, but it is it, it re- reflects the consensus of the, the United States Congress that we should not use federal funds for op- operations on human embryos that are destructive. And so this is a huge controversy and was the central, uh, controversy in the years I was on the president's council. And by the way, um, the council was convened when president Bush addressed, he made his first address to the nation on embryonic stem cells. That's how central it was at the time. And, and, uh, Then 9-11 happened a month later and got buried, but in terms of the front page, but it was still a very bitter controversy. So I found this this quote from a political advocacy group advocating the the research, but I thought it applies equally. We fight because lives can't wait. Well, the the pro-life forces would equally well say lives can't wait to let them grow. But the controversy is very complicated because people can't relate very easily to this, uh, in some cases anyway. This is an a eight-cell human embryo on the sharp tip of a pin. That's how small it is, barely visible. And yet, if you stop to think about it, you realize that that's the first stage of a human life, that you all started like that. And, and life is a series of unfolding stages. And, and uh, that's why, of course, because of the continuity is why we want to study it if there were no moral, if there were no moral factors. Um, But life unfolds and it would be very interesting as we've done with animals to knock a gene out, see what it was supposed to have done or add a new gene in and see what it did. Toxicology studies, um, all sorts of things we could do with embryos, no end, thousands of them. But it's continuity of life. And this was an extremely bitter controversy over embryonic stem cells, and this is another video I want to show you. This is a political ad of 2006. Next summer, I'm going on a camping trip with my friends. On my way home, I'll be in a car accident and I'll be paralyzed for the rest of my life. In 20 years, I'll have Alzheimer's. I won't recognize my husband or my kids. Next week, my me and you are going to find out that I have diabetes. This is my Congressman. Congressman Don Sherwood. He voted against federal funding for stem cell research. Is he a doctor? Is he a scientist? Why did Congressman Sherwood bet my life that he knows best? Help me. Help me. Who knows? Maybe I'm your mother. Maybe I'm your grandson. Maybe I'm your little girl. How do you know I'm not you? Stem cell research could save lives. Maybe yours or your family's. Someone you love. Only Congressman Sherwood said no. How come he thinks he gets to decide who is and who dies? Who is he? Majority action is responsible for the content of this advertising. So I I don't know what happened to Pearl Congressman Sherwood, but I think it's a whatever way you feel about this issue, I think it's a very unfair ad. And and I this is one of the most important things I have to say to you. Be alert, because you can make you can justify almost anything on the basis of an argument from suffering, but the argument from suffering has no bottom. And to override core principles that govern many others and in some ways more significant dimensions of life is illegitimate. And that's what's going to happen now increasingly with advances in biotechnology. You're going to hear all the positives of come, and they're going to try to run right over the, the, for more core issues of, of human ethics. So I want to end by by showing you just four questions that are going to be very, very important in the future of, of biology. How many of you are in biological research fields or study? Uh, okay. Um, even those not will recognize the importance of these questions. And the key is here For those who choose the beginnings of a road also choose its destination. So your assumptions and the means you use must cohere with the ends that are arrived. And they should not be in conflict with each other. Um, First question, will we now endorse the use of human embryos for a wide range of studies of infertility and early development? Well, in the stem cell debates, it was just embryos that were going to get discarded for IVF. You know you could sort of see why people would say that's okay even if you don't agree you might even say it's not it's not quite the same as as all they want to do is get the embryonic stem cell but you could use the same embryos for many many studies so if you use them for one thing why not another so next question will we allow the creation not just the use of spares or leftover to be discarded embryos will we allow the creation of embryos specifically for research purposes. That's Rudy Yanish, the guy told you, made the first recombinant mouse. Um, many, many studies you could do if you could create embryos and modify their genes in the process. How many embryos is it okay then to use in research if you do create them? Well, a Japanese scientist made 581 copies of this same mouse through 25 rounds of cloning. And you would want cloned embryos, if possible, because they'd at least be as close as you could get to standardized platforms. Um, You modify one, leave the other unmodified and see the difference. But then if you're gonna make cloned embryos, you have to have a lot of eggs. So where will the eggs come from? Well, we still can't produce eggs in in vitro. Um, I think we will get there. I thought we'd have it by now, but I'd say within the next few years. They're going to figure out how to make endless numbers of eggs, but in the meantime, people pointed out that, that you can get them from aborted fetuses. Imagine making embryos from a aborted fetus that never had a life of its a post a postnatal life of its own. But in the meantime, people had suggested that we might get them from stem cells themselves, because after all. The theory was that you could turn these stem cells into all the different cell types of the body. And so I had this conversation, with this guy, Davos Salter, who this quote was later from, I think it's Nature magazine. And he says, today you can't experiment on human embryos because it's considered morally repugnant. And they're difficult to get anyway. If embryos could be grown in culture, like any other cell line, if we had enough eggs, we could do that because sperm is in abundance, obviously. But eggs are the bottleneck in this agenda. If if embryos could be grown in culture like any other cell line, that latter problem would disappear. They'd become like any other type of cell line. They would become objects and would be used as objects. At first, it could be terrible, but then we'd say it was a fact of life. Maybe 20, 30 years from now, we're reading newspapers that someone made 20,000 embryos and studied their development, and we'll decide, well, it's okay. Dostoevsky said, Man gets used to everything, the beast. That's good coming out of Russia these days. Um, So the fourth question is, will we allow research on embryos beyond 14 days? And if so, for how long? And according to what principles of moral evaluation and logic? My own colleague at Stanford was on the California committee, and he said, well, but 14 days, just that's the limit now. But it could be changed in the future based on neuroscience. Neuroscience, what are they going to discover about human dignity or respect or inviolability through neuroscience? Well, another colleague at Stanford, a guy I knew very well, the head of the Center for Biomedical Ethics, said, well, it's fine to use embryos because they don't become even a potential person until emergence of a rudimentary central nervous system, something which is thought to happen in about 26 weeks of gestation, he said. This was published. This was in that alumni magazine I showed you. 26 weeks of gestation. We got kids leaving in the intensive care nursery, the NICU at Stanford at 22, that are born at 22 weeks. And, and uh, so you're in completely off days. But the, the nervous system develops right along with the rest of the organ systems. The definition of the embryonic period is the period of organ development. it's true, the nervous system is delayed and continues to, to, to develop, probably all through life, but at least with you guys are still, your, your frontal cortex is still coming in place. That's why you sometimes, not you guys, but your contemporaries drink too much and do foolish things. But, but uh, 26 weeks, that's crazy. And, and um, that's kind of thinking that's happening in bioethics today, a real tour de force of stupidity. Um, anyway, 14 days. Anybody thoughtful knew it would never hold. And lo and behold, they're very visiting now. The International Society for Stem Cell Research has said it, we should now move the barrier to 28 days because we can keep them alive that long. And some people are advocating 40 days. So there you go. It, it should be no surprise to anybody who knows how things work. But now, what would that mean? Well, this guy, Julian Salvalesco, a physician from Australia who runs a big think tank at Oxford University. You've heard of Oxford University. You wouldn't think you'd get thinking like this out of Oxford, but there it is. He said it's morally required that we employ clones to produce embryos or fetuses for the sake of providing cells, tissues, and even organs for therapy, followed by abortion of the embryo or fetus. And there's a company in Silicon Valley that's taking abortive fetuses and trying to get their organs. It turns out that you can actually you can actually take organ primordia, that's the early formation of the organ, and and, uh, develop, put it into an animal and it will continue to develop. And I'm going to take the extra time to tell you this amazing story. One, 30 years ago, one of my friends was working at us at a, a biotech startup in South Palo Alto. And it was, it, it, I knew they were doing really amazing things. And so, so I, I wanted to go see it. And he took me through and Partway through the, one of the labs, he'd lift up a test tube, and he said, look down in there. And I looked down, and there was a little tiny human hand about as big, maybe three-eighths of an inch, about that big, and it, it was just a hand that severed at the wrist. And I said, where did you get that? And he said, oh, well, we we took an aborted fetus for a very, very early abortion, like about four, four or five weeks, and we snipped off... The limb bud, which is a push out from the trunk of the embryo, just a little tiny bump. And we put it into the abdominal cavity of a skid mouse, severe combined immune deficient mouse that could would not reject it immunologically and let it see if, to see if it would grow. We opened the mouse up three weeks later and there was a fully formed little hand. Wow. I thought to myself, wow, that's amazing. Someday we may be able to grow hands and maybe even tissue compatible hands from a person who's lost a limb. And then I thought to myself, yeah, but that was gonna be somebody's little hand. And I remember the little hand of my own children lying across the breast while they're nursing. And I thought, oh my gosh, are we gonna turn this whole enterprise into something sinister? Here's a quote from Erwin Chargoff, is a major figure in biotechnology. Um, well, at least in genetics, in the 20th century. I think he's the guy that discovered the base pairs, the complementarity of the base pairs. Anyway, he was a very thoughtful man, and he said, science is now the craft of the manipulation, substitution, and deflection of the forces of nature. What I see coming is a gigantic slaughterhouse, an Auschwitz, in which valuable enzymes, hormones, and so on, will be extracted instead of gold teeth. His family had been through Auschwitz, okay? So Leo Alexander was a Harvard physician who was in the Nuremberg trials and then helped write the Nuremberg Code. And he wrote an amazing essay, and you should take this down and you should read this. Medicine Under a Dictatorship, or Medicine Under Dictatorship, Leo Alexander. Don't read it just before you go to bed at night, okay? It's horrifying what the Nazis did what Mengele did to people. And you'll be amazed to read this essay. It's hard to even believe people could do it. But what Leo Alexander said was, what happened there? Um, What Leo Alexander said is, it all began with small beginnings. Just little assumptions, changes in the basic assumptions about what life is. And we it's in our culture too, Francis Crick, Watson, Crick, double helix, said newborn infants should be not be declared human until they meet certain criteria. Here we come. What is madness, said Voltaire, to have erroneous perceptions and to reason correctly from them. We're at an amazing moment. We dwell on possibilities, new powers over genetics. Some say we have to do it. Some say nature has no moral compass. It's a moment of very great significance. Everything's tied to everything else. The natural world has an order and beauty. Our powers are exceeding our wisdom. Who knows where we'll go? You're going to be the generation that sets the whole future of humanity. So there we are back at the hands again. And I think we need to realize who we are and where we are. We're both spectators and actors in the great drama of existence. Let's be very, very careful and very reverent. Uh, how we use this technology.